Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey gang, Aaron Noonan, great to have you with me for the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. This week, it's part two of my chat with Triple Eight Supremo, Roland Dane. Now in the first episode, we covered his time in the UK, the British Touring Car Championship, and we just got rolling in the Triple Eight chapter in V8 Supercars in Australia. So on part two, we're going to dive deeper into the Supercars and Triple Eight story. We start with the first breakthrough win when Craig Lowndes won at Eastern Creek in 2005, the same year that the team did a deal with one of its rivals, Stone Brothers Racing, to supply the engines to the better electrical Falcons. We talk about how Triple Eight's success changed the rules of the Bathurst 1000, and we go through a bunch of those Bathurst races where Triple Eight either won, nearly won, or won but nearly won and nearly won but didn't. Anyway, you know what I mean. They're in the mix all of those times, and there's plenty of Triple Eight Bathurst stories to be told. We talk about 2006 in depth. We talk about the winning car, Chassis 10, as well. It's a very famous and important car in the history of Triple Eight. We also get stuck into the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. And yes, Jason Plato is covered. Right, part two. Let's get into it. Roland Dane on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. You get your first win in 05, uh, Eastern Creek, the first of many. Um, but I think the bit you mentioned before and I wanted to ask you about it quickly was we talk about 05 so much and Lowndes arriving, but everyone really forgets the Stone Brothers engine deal that you did to power your cars because mm. they clearly had good engines. Other teams also ended up using them, Brad's and Larco's and mm. and the like. But that was a, that's sort of an often overlooked element of – the pieces of the puzzle of your place at that time? Yeah. I mean, Ross and Jimmy, uh, they'd gone on top of the um, of the engine site. You know, the rules were much more open then, as you know. Uh, and they had they'd developed a, a good package um, a year or two before. And, uh, and they sought, quite rightly, to maximise the commercial uh, vi- uh, possibilities with that engine. And so they set up a bespoke engine shop um which to my mind later later on they actually you know sort of frittered away a massive um opportunity there to to carry that on which then you know kenny mcnamara picked up and he's far and away the predominant uh race car uh race engine builder Mm. in, in australia today and sprint cars as well as um supercars uh but back then yeah, Ross and Jimmy had set up this engine shop uh, with uh, it's well equipped, uh, and it was looking after I think us, Joneses, and Larkham, mm. and, and some well development as, series stuff. And correct. I mean, uh, any blokes who could take cash off you, Larko, and Bradley m- mm. must be good. Seriously, yeah, yeah and and, and uh, the, the 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 arrangement um, worked very well. You know. I'd, did a deal with Ross um, at a cafe in Stones Corner in South Brisbane. 
um, we sat down there and did a deal uh, which um, covered uh, four years, um, five, six, seven, eight, uh, for the engines. And um, once we bedded it down, which happened very quickly, uh, to be honest, it, it ran very well. It was expensive. Uh, but then uh, at the time, that was the market rate. Yeah, that mm. is, the market rate is what people will pay. And so, and I was prepared to pay it. Uh, and um, yeah, we went on to, to win our first championship. We won three Bathurst with those engines uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of other races as well. Mm. Of all of those ones, Bathurst 06 has this special thing. It was the first win for you guys. There was the lead up with Brock. There was, you could probably make a movie about that one day. There's enough elements that mm. Hollywood probably would get, or Netflix as it probably is now, would be would be all over. What's the standout memory and moment of that win, of that day that, that sticks in your brain? Because there's so many elements to something like that and everyone's got a different, who was on the outside probably has a different thought process, whether they were there watching on TV, whether they're a Triple Eight fan or not, a Craig Lowndes fan or not. What's the one thing that sticks in your brain from that day that maybe we didn't see or we didn't experience as, as outsiders watching on? Um, the, the, the emotion uh, around that whole race meeting uh, was, yeah, extraordinary. Um, and, uh, and obviously a lot of that was to do with, with Peter Brock, but um, from a Triple Eight point of view, uh, it was it was a massive day. Uh, the uh, but the there's a there's a little instant in the yeah around lap a hundred and I don't know you can look it up hundred and five hundred. I've got a database. It's okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. Uh, and it and um, Todd Kelly was leading at a restart, and Jamie was behind him. Uh, and Jamie uh, just drove straight past him. Straight up the inside, um, turn one on correct. a restart, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, Todd Kelly was on the radio. He was flabbergasted. He thought it was Craig in the car. No, that's Jamie. Oh. And um, if you remember, uh, Jamie would actually kept Todd behind him at Adelaide, mm. race two at Adelaide at the beginning to win. of the year. Yeah, yeah to win. Um, and uh, and so Todd shouldn't have been surprised, but on the radio he was, and um, Jamie had it nailed, uh, and and that's the reason that that he was at Triple Eight. Because mm. at the time, rules changed a few years later, but you could, you've always said that the reason to get Jamie was to put him with Craig. For, for a Bathurst combo these days you can't do that because the the split but that's a whole other chat which one day we might swap it back I'd hope so but anyway um, yeah I mean that's what I I want to see the best of the well let's talk about it, bugger it I want to see the best of the best going at it all day not us all go alright the other bikes are in the car for the next little while it's an important part of it and don't get me wrong but others have the argument and I'm interested in your view that more cars can win the race now when you split them all out in their own cars. But I would argue that it's the same amount of teams that could win. If you pair them together, more teams can win the same amount of cars. So this came about, this was one of the, the first 
rule changes aimed specifically at triple eight. So the um, and over the over the years, and I say this without any rancor. In fact, I think it's the ultimate accolade. Mm. Is that almost all of pit lane has spent most of the last fifteen years trying to stop triple eight through whatever means they can, politically, rules, whatever. And uh, to this day, they still haven't done it. Now, I'm not saying they won't at some point, but right now they haven't. And um, and I, re- I regard that as the ultimate backhanded compliment, mm. right? Uh, in 2009, yeah, Tim Edwards came into a um, team owners meeting and uh, – or a board meeting, I can't remember, and said, um, oh, we need to stop uh, Jamie and Craig winning every Bathurst, right? This was before 2009 Bathurst. Uh, I think it was the September. Um, and clearly they're worried we're going to win, win Bathurst again. Four in a row, which yeah. had never been done. But we actually screwed it up. <laughs> so we should have won it. We were leading, but we actually managed to screw it up. But... Um, Anyway, uh, now, it was shaped around this thing of, oh, we've got different sponsors on different cars and all the rest of it. But basically it was, let's stop Jamie and Craig getting in the same car. Mm. Uh, You'll give more teams an opportunity. Um, So, yeah, I was obviously against the rule, but uh, other people voted for it, so it got changed. And uh, that made what happened in 2010 quadruply satisfying, as it were, when we um, took two steps on the podium rather than just one. In your first year with Holden as well. So there was a whole pile of things. Yeah. And and it meant that we we no longer got to see you bring out some Europeans and other drivers for the the second car, which personally I really enjoyed to see who you were going to give a crack to and wheel out someone who we watched on TV for years and come and play in our garden. It it doubled or more the driver fees, co-driver fees overnight. Mm. Right. Everyone wants the best, so they'll just, ask the price. Yeah. If the market will pay it, exactly as you said before. Push the push the price up um, and uh, only the liars will deny that. And um, it also meant that you weren't prepared to take gambles. I'm not just talking about internationals. I'm, talk- I'm, I'm talking about all people. Mm. The gambles, you weren't prepared to, to take gambles on people. Mm. And uh, and that's a shame in my book. So mm. uh, I I'm not a supporter of the rule, but the, well, all the time the rules there. Well, then the rules there. Then mm. you you got to play by. True. Uh, those three Bathursts in a row. The sixth one we talked about. It's got that um, Hollywood style flavour to it. I reckon the end of the 07 race is probably, and that we've seen corking finishes over the last 15-odd years at Bathurst, I reckon that's probably the best one, partly because I was in the pit lane for the first year with seven, but the slippery conditions, it was Craig, Stephen Johnson, James Courtney, Greg Murphy, Alan Simonson in your other car, uh, Alex Davis and Glenn. Oh, it's sad that I can remember exactly who was in yeah, what car, where, and why, how. But <laughs> it really sticks in my brain as one of the all-time great finishes. Where 
you know, as you said before, there's probably moments in each of those three wins where you might not have won. Stevie J led very late in 07. Uh, Craig rubbed wheels with Murph up first lap of 08 and was lucky to maybe get away with yeah. that. So there's yeah. all these moments where you need a bit of luck. But 07 to me, I, I reckon that was that was brilliant, which is probably overshadowed by 06 because 06 was so big. Yeah, it is. Um, it is overshadowed. You're quite right. 07 was exciting. Um, uh, you know, it was, I can't remember, but around sort of lap 120 or whatever, it looked as though it was all done. You had... Um, uh, Winterbottom leading and Craig second and we were I don't know the length of mountains straight behind or something uh, weren't particularly close to him uh, and uh, it looks as though the race had run out of energy um, and just that, when you think that at Bathurst though I know and that's I don't uh, know how it just does it's just part does. of it it really mm. is uh, so and it came alive obviously with the um, with the uh, dampness yeah, because it, it never rained properly. Mm, just um, a little bit. But damp enough to cause chaos. And mm. then you saw, um, it's actually one of the moves of the race was Alan Simonson missing um, half the grid crashing in front of him on mm. the top of the mountain. Mm. Uh, that was superb. Um, and, and bearing in mind that at one stage, you know, we'd had to um, compromise him and Richard Lyons in that car uh, to look after the other car in a pit stop. And um, and Richard had been on the radio, yeah, whining about it. And Campbell Little said, "Get a concrete sandwich out of the glove box and get on with it, mate." Um, and uh, <laughs> so, and fair enough, they did. And and Alan did a, a great job, given the opportunity at, near the end. And Craig um, kept his head. I wasn't worried about Stevie Stevie J. Um, I thought Courtney potentially would have been more of a a threat, but um, but actually both of them were a, um, were a real threat in that uh, in that last um, uh, few laps after yeah after Frosty had uh, screwed up the restart um, showed you know how tricky it is when you're being the pioneer. That was the year, wasn't it? That last pit stop, Jamie put it through the gravel, very nearly got it bunkered, very nearly missed the pit entry, just squeezed his way back on to roll it into the lane to give it back to Craig. So there's all those little moments that we mm. love of the history of the race where it could go one way, it could go the other way, and it's sometimes oh. the, the Bathurst gods are sort of deciding the who, what, when, where of, they are. of the whole in, thing. In 09 when um, we were leading the race and uh, we had um, a clutch-bearing issue that came and went, uh, but more particularly at the last pit stop, uh, we wound the roll centre the wrong way. Uh-huh. And uh, so if we'd gone the right way on the roll centre, um, I think there's every chance we would have won that race. Mm. Uh, so Jamie was in the car. We'd wound the roll centre the wrong way uh, and we totally changed the processes after that, as you do or should do. Uh, but um, that was a, it was a massive error and I think we also we screwed up the blanking at that last stop. And if we'd done what we intended to do, uh, I think there's every chance we would have won that race. Could have been four, which had never been done and still hasn't been done by a combo at all. Which oh, is, it, you know, it, it's the stuff of legends to be able it, to do that. Every race since 2005, we could have won. 
every yeah. single one. But well, well, let's. That's the, that's what I love about it is the fact that you can make a case for it. We can. Well, we we Easy. led everyone. Mm. We've we've mm. been in a position to to win every single one of the Bathursts that we haven't won. Mm. So, which one of those ones that you didn't win stung the most? Ah, oh, um, they all sting when you don't win them. Mm. Uh, but um, twenty seventeen with Shane, um, you know, when at the restart he went down the escape road. It's funny that you say that uh, one because that's probably not the one that. That Most of a, our listeners would think of. No, that's a walkover for Shane if he hadn't made that mistake. Um, having said that, the subsequent drive in the damp conditions that Shane put in to try and recover some positions was um, stunning. Mm. Watching him throw the car around uh, and we had the the guy who's now head of sport for Red Bull around the world um, Thomas Uber was in the garage that day. He said to me after, I don't care he didn't win. I just love watching that. Mm. So, uh, no, that was a biggie. Um, the uh, Jamie Fuel thing, of course. Um, oh, I forgot go that down one. I forgot that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go down. But also in, in, in 2011 when um, Andrew Thompson and mm. Jamie should have won easily and uh, we had a battery issue or um, an alternator issue turned into a battery one. Uh, that wasn't – yeah, we should have won that one uh, very easily. And um, so, the, look, what I like is, though, that every single one we've been in a position to, to win. There's not a year since 05 where Triple Eight – was irrelevant in the race, that you have to go yeah. and dig through a race report to go, oh, shit, what, what happened to them that year? It doesn't really stand out. No, it's either, o- o- it's five a, we should have won. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Lancey hits the wall, uh, breaks then, the what's link. Yeah, and then and when then, we didn't win it, well, then, uh, you know, Marcus or, or Murph should have won it mm, and mm. et cetera. People kept chucking it away. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's those races that it looks like no one wants to win. I know everyone mm. does want to win it, mm. but all this weird shit just goes on up there. And just when you thought, you know, I've seen it all. Like I've, it, every script's been written. Somehow the bloody joint throws a curly at you that you go, did not see that one coming, did not plan for that one, did not quite know that that was even possible yeah. to happen. But um, yeah, 05, Craig hits the wall, Watts linkage breaks, and, of course, the windscreen was later on, but you're already out of the running by that stage yeah. when he got the the PD wheel through the, the Larry bar, which was a good bar yeah. to have on a day like that, actually. It was. Um, and that's uh, – we actually got asked this question recently, but that 05 car was the car that won in 06, so it was a pulse hitter one year for the race. It was a winner the following year, and it – Yep. Before Jamie's Kate won all those races and Shane's current cars won an absolute truckload to take the new to take the record, mm. that chassis ten I know was we've talked about it over the years that that's a that's a really special car in the grand scheme of of Triple Eight's history. It's been sold to a, a collector now, but oh five oh six and it came back a, a little bit of oh seven. It's a really special special car for what it did. When you look at all the the bannerhead markers for Triple Eight, first pole, first win, Sandown five hundred winner, Bathurst pole. Bathurst win, a bunch of other stuff in between as well. It's oh, kind of the, the car that made Triple Eight, you know, in, in, in my brain. It was a great cool. car. Mm. Great, great car, and that's why I kept it for such a long time. Mm. Yeah. He's sentimental. I mean, V8 Sleuth's been built on the histories of the cars and the, mm. the history of the sport, and I know you, you had that one for a long time, but over the journey, are any cars special to you or do you just 
generally unless there's a really special one like that there. It's just the next one, get the next one in that's that's faster and yeah. lighter and stronger. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm not that sentimental about them at all. Uh, Chassis 10, you know, I, I was sentimental about it, uh, which is why we restored it to exactly how it was that day in, in 2006, right down to the stickers and <laughs> everything. Uh, but, um, yeah, but I'm not really that sentimental about mm. Um, about those things, to be honest, they're a uh, they're a tool of the trade. Um, you know, I, I like them, but uh, but I, d- I don't feel attached to them. Does it amaze you that other people are so? You know, there's people out there who have got some of these cars, or they're they're into HRT cars or Triple Eight cars, mm-hmm. and they could rattle off to you every race with every chassis number, every this or that. Does it, is it kind of? It's almost like a cottage industry of the whole thing that there's people that are so. And we're sort of included in this, so wound up and so interested and so intrigued by oh, it. I think it's great, but it, you know, everyone has their own. Well, not if you look look behind you. There's an awful lot of dollars in uh, in art. You, you got know, a few just, on the walls here. I noticed. Oh, I've got about a hundred in storage. You know, I've just got. Uh, um, I love different sorts of pictures and different art for different reasons, and um, so. Uh, Different people have different, yeah, different things Everyone's that got a uh, thing. that tickle their fancy, and mm. I'm very happy that for some people, it's um, it's old race cars. Mm. Yeah, as long as they keep making them, they keep getting old, and we can keep writing about it and uh, writing about it. And so much so that we're we're going to do next year for the 20th anniversary of Triple Eight mm. a Triple Eight car history book, which mm. we've we've announced a while back, and we delayed mm. it to um, get it to the end of the Gen Two era, which was extended by a year. But I think it's about 54 chassis or something thereabouts from the first Briggs cars that you inherited when you bought the team, right, right. through to the last. ZB Commodore yeah. of, of Gen 2, which not just all your cars that you no. raced, uh, your team, but built for, for customers, people. DJR, Lucas Dumbrell, Techno, PCR. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been plenty along the way. So there's yeah. there's a lot of ground to cover there. You've given us a lot of work, but we're uh, we're happy to d- go through the files to, to bring it all together because oh, it's going to be a really cool book next year. It'll be out in time for um, the anniversary next year. Make sure it's as good as the LP one. He gave me, uh, he gave me that... Um, must have been earlier this year or end of last year. End of, end last, of last year, year. Yeah. He yeah. gave me a copy of that. Oh, no pressure, no pressure. Jeez, <laughs> great. Thanks a lot. Hey, why do you and the dude get along so well? You're like the opposites of opposites, but mm. oh, I'm so intrigued by the dude and Dane. What, what's the what's the link there? Is it because you're so different that you get along? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe. I think. Um, uh, I think that. The thing with Paul is that um, an awful lot of people totally underestimate him and uh, they don't realise how smart he is and how sharp he is. And he can come over um, as the opposite sometimes, uh, but I I know he isn't. And, you know, I'll seek his counsel and he'll seek my counsel about things. Uh, But there have been... Um, yeah, there have been several things over the years that have that have made a difference. But I always, yeah, I remember him and Terry uh, very early in the piece when, yeah, I hadn't been here long at all, you know, a couple of months or something, inviting me and um, Peter Butterley was around then, that old Irish friend of mine, and um, to round to their house, you know, to shoot the breeze and being sociable and, you know, and, and uh, wanting to 
chat with us about our view of the world, as it were, right back in I don't know, late 2003 um, when yeah, Nash was uh, just born pretty mm. much. Mm. And, um, and then uh, they were, they've been very, uh, very helpful over um, a couple of things personally along the way. And uh, they, um, as a family, and uh, and also, um, yeah, we had a relationship through the Holden um, situation when we went to to Holden's in 2010, uh, and Simon McNamara said, "I want you to build two cars as well for Paul Morris Motorsport, etc." And I think um, I think Paul also suddenly he started to have an understanding of, you know, what made triple eight different from everyone else. Uh, so there's just, there's a, just a, a mutual, mutual respect there. Um, and, uh, and we've shared some good times to be honest. I mean, I always pictured that I've got sort of two, two real, um, Australian brothers. Yeah. One's, uh, guy who was the team physio for many years uh, Chris Brady mm -hmm. a very good family friend as well as personal and uh, and Paul and because uh, I know yeah that um, I can ring them anytime and uh, and they'll drop what what they're doing and, and help if if I need it and vice versa so uh, maybe just because we're so different because <laughs> uh, it's the same with Chris Brady. You know, he's very different. He's, I call him a Brisbane's leading metrosexual. Um, <laughs> but he's, a, yeah, he's a brilliant person, a, a brilliant uh, uh, father, friend, uh, physio, and um, uh, and there for an awful lot of people, not just me. And, and um, they're very different characters. Mm. Any Vegas road trips planned? Are we going again? Well, you got some more time on your hands. Come on. Yeah, I was talking to Paul about it the other day in the context of uh, you know we still got to buy that, go to LA, buy that motorhome, and just bugger off and see where it takes us sometime. Which race meetings, which you know, which stock car meetings, which uh, um, country fairground meetings we're going to go and go and watch because why not? Uh, sooner or later, that's the plan. Mm, sounds good. Sounds good. One of the things I've always admired watching from afar of Triple Eight um, is your, the culture that you built there. The team is probably the, the most successful on the track and I reckon it's partied the hardest off the track. So it's no surprise that I think that's one of the – is there like a six commandments or a six sort of pillars of Triple Eight? And you, you'll know them off the top of your head, but that's one of them. Mm. S celebrate the wins when you get them and really enjoy it. That's, that's actually one of – there's not many businesses and companies that would put party hard – in its list of the six must-dos yeah, in the business. It, it is there. and it's, uh, um, But it's also about partying when you don't win. And, yeah, one of the biggest parties in the history of Triple Eight was in, in Hamilton in 2008 when uh, Jamie and, and Todd Kelly had to come in together and qualifying. Mm. And Jamie was out of, out of the race, uh, and the race whole weekend. Uh, which um, you had to overcome in going, getting the championship that mm. year, which uh, was pretty special. But um, we we got an awful lot of New Zealand dollars 
um, over that weekend from selling the parts that were <laughs> off um, the car. <laughs> off the car, and uh, and then we went on a, a massive binge on the Sunday night with um, with PMM and FPR, uh, three teams, um, and uh, and we did. To be honest, we never really got back to the hotel. We came back and got our kit and then set off for Auckland at, <laughs> at six in the morning or something. Uh, but and that was, yeah, I was determined that we would um, we would party away the blues that we had um, uh, at the beginning of that weekend. Uh, and it's something, yeah, we, we've done subsequently, but. Yeah, so both ways, uh, we have um, we have always partied hard. We've had some that old house of mine that you've been to up the hill there. Um, <laughs> that's been the scene of some massive parties. You know, I, I'm proud to say the police have been called a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, you know, you're doing well if that's happening. That's that's yeah, good. that's good. Exactly. Um, what are those other six commandments? Well, there's a, don't assume. I think that's a really important one too that people get wrong in life, let alone well, in that's business. Well, that's not one of them. That's a, a motto of the business. So mm. assume nothing is on all the collateral, yeah, paperwork, the race schedules, etc. cetera. And um, I'm always saying to the team, always have done that, don't assume somebody else has done something. Um, yeah, when you get on a... A 737 to fly to Sydney, you've got to make some assumptions. That's the way it is. You've got to assume the people in the cockpit know what they're doing and the maintenance crew know, know what they're doing, all the rest of it. But in our world of motorsport, uh, don't make assumptions. And uh, that's why we have um, checklists and, and double check, uh, exactly like you see the air crew on a plane doing when they're uh, putting the doors back to manual or whatever on mm. landing. So um, that's a part of it. Um, look, the, 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 other, um, the other six are, are really to, to do with focusing the, um, or the other five uh, commandments are, are, are really to do with focusing on, on what you're doing about clear direction, about self-examination uh, of, of how you do things. And um, really, uh, even when you have a, weekend like Shane had last weekend with yeah three wins three fastest laps he's taken all the points off the table uh, that he could possibly do as a team there will have been stuff we could have done better and so you've got to be totally honest with yourselves and not just say oh let's not have a debrief because it all went pretty well which is I know the attitude of some other people you've absolutely got to get down and understand what the issues were uh, sometimes they're individual issues in which case it, people have got to be honest and admit it and then sometimes you've got to put your arm around them afterwards to pump them back up again but unless you admit the mistakes you can't do anything about it uh, and that's <laughs> and that's really where my ethos is coming from so it's just a question of of then expressing it in a way which i'm i'm quite protective of if you like because it's the ip of the of mm. the business yeah another team asked me recently um well actually two teams one in australia and one overseas team 
um, asked me if they could uh, um, have or buy my playbook. And I said, no. And anyway, it's not mine to offer you anymore because it's mm. triple eights. Mm. And, and I know Jamie said no. <laughs> so <laughs> you're not going to get it off me because mm. uh, it's taken many years to develop. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. What's the difference between being a boss and being a leader? Uh, I'm interested as a small business owner with a few people that work in our business and uh, there's probably a lot of people who listen to our podcast to work for themselves. They run a small business with a, a few employees or whatever industry that they might be in. So it's relevant to a lot of people, not just people running race teams or, or big business. But which of those things is what you feel is the right thing to be, a boss or a leader? Is Because there's a distinct difference between the two things. Yeah, and, and they're both important but uh, if you're going to succeed. So, uh, look, being a leader, it can often depend on on the size of organisation, number of people, uh, what you do, etc. So, um, yeah, I've got a, uh, one of my oldest friends in the UK is one of the most successful hoteliers in Europe and everything, and he's got... You know, over a thousand people working from him for him, so he has to lead in a very different way from leading at Triple Eight, for instance, with fifty uh, odd people. But in sport, um, you've got to lead by showing that you're prepared to put your neck out in terms of commitment, the way they are. Uh, you, <laughs> the people working for you. So, and it, one of the things that always has amazed me about uh, people in motorsport in Australia as well, broader, is management distancing themselves from the people who are doing the hard yards. So, yeah, for years and years and years, when I was actively in the front line of managing the race team at Triple Eight. I didn't go home before they did, whether it was at the track or whether it was um, at the factory. Um, I didn't expect them to do things that I wasn't prepared to do. By the same token, I also uh, showed that when um, they were unsure about the world or about the uh, or about the um, sponsorship market or whatever that that um, I was the voice of reassurance to them on a one-on-one basis and collectively and the uh, as the yeah as you've been through different we've all been through different scenarios over the last 20 years you have to be able to demonstrate that even if behind the scenes or under the water you're paddling like mad right so you've got to um, be able to demonstrate real leadership and uh, you know when in in the history of triple eight it hasn't all been plain sailing but you know when 
when Ford pulled out with no warning at all. Sometimes you've been able to preempt things in the past, but you got to reassure everyone. Um, the GFC around that, um, when people are looking overseas and seeing, oh, mm. you know, what's happening? Um, when uh, when Vodafone announced that they were pulling out and you know, couldn't be kept a secret because they were walking away from cricket at the same time. Mm. Uh, and just reassuring it, honestly, there's a plan. Now, in that case, there was a plan B, but uh, but sometimes, yeah, the plan B hadn't actually been been done. So you've got to uh, take everyone with you, keep them reassured. Don't go thinking that you've got to go and work for somebody else because you haven't. Don't worry about it. Um, those sort of scenarios uh, are where leaders can really lead. But when I see, to be honest, half the half the team managers in in the paddock over the years leaving the circuit at six o'clock in the evening, when at a street circuit on a Saturday night, when you know that the crew are going to be there till ten or eleven. Mm. Now, if you're not team managing, okay, fine. Or if you're commercial operations, fine. But if you're the team manager, you should be there. Mm. Mm, with the team, yeah. now, one of the things I always noticed about your about Triple Eight at Banyo, which now that we have this discussion, we're sort of talking a bit of, you know, it's leadership, it's mm. being a boss, all that type of stuff. It's just dawned on me as you were talking that when I've walked up the stairs at Banyo, you didn't have a cubicle. You, there wasn't a Roland's office up the stairs in the corner with the door. You had a desk among the desks with the commercial department, the the engineers over in the corner. Mm. Uh, you know, you're pretty accessible. You're among it all, which is a reflection of what you're saying, of, totally. of your style. Totally. No, so the open plan scenario is something that I've done um, several times through the years in terms of off, you know, my offices. And the, um, the, the first place I actually saw how effective that was was at the Honda World HQ in, um, in Tokyo, where I can't remember which floor it, it was, the 8th or the 11th or whatever, uh, but the, the president of Honda was on a desk in the middle of the room, slightly above, with all the, the main managers at desks um, in a semicircle surrounding him mm. and then meeting rooms if you needed them off around it. But he could look at that person and say, hey, come here now. Mm. <laughs> um, and... Uh, very accessible from what I could see uh, and I've tried to make myself as accessible as possible um, at triple eight so that anyone um, yeah even if it's sometimes a pain in the ass or awkward or whatever anyone can roll up and mm. and and talk to me mm. and um, whether it's good bad or or just say hello mm. seems to work hey you became an Australian citizen in 2016. How many, yeah. how many passports have you got? Have yeah, you had right. over the journey? No, I've got three. Yeah, got an Irish one because I was born there, uh, and I still, yeah. If I honestly, I still love it. I've got a British one because um, I spent an awful lot of my life there. Uh, I can't say I'm in love with it, but my elder daughter lives there, and a lot of friends, and my one of my sisters lives there, and one of my brothers. 
uh, and an, an Australian one, which I'm very attached to. Which is the best one. It's the best one. We know it's the best one. We know it's the best one. Uh, I was going to ask you about the best triple eight party, but we've already covered that off. But um, have you driven? I swear I remember you driving one of the triple eight supercars over the journey. Or was that the wagon Sandman or have you driven one of them over the journey? Or have oh, you had a few goes along the way? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've driven a few times. I, I drove one at QR with Gover once. Mm. Gover drove and I drove. Um just to see who was quickest. And? I think the stopwatch ran out both times. It just didn't last that long. <laughs> I might have to check the episode we did with him to see what he said, but I reckon I know what he said. I'm <laughs> I think, thinking he I might think have I given himself. Faster. Oh, really? Oh, well, well, if I wasn't, I would have made sure I yeah, was. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> I just pressed that one a bit earlier on the way exactly. past. Exactly. I, I honestly can't remember. But, yeah, no, I've, uh, there's a few times I've, I've, uh, I've driven one, but... Um, I think each time I've probably done about 20 grand's worth of damage to the gearbox, so it's not, not really worth doing. Uh, fair point, fair point. Uh, what, what else have you got lurking around? Have you still got the white Jag Group A car that we saw a few years ago? Yeah, I've got that, which is um, we're sort of it's in the queue to be rebuilt. Uh, so I've got a, yeah, I've got my own workshop, totally separate from Triple Eight, uh, with my own guy there. And uh, so he's been, um, he spent a lot of time working on the uh, the replica Audi Quattro I've got, the short short mm. Quattro, um, which I used at Noosa Hill Climb. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, uh, a few weeks ago. Um, he's been rebuilding the my two-door STI Subaru, which um, is uh, um, tuned but not crazily. Uh, I love that car. Um, so uh, the Camaro, 67 Camaro, I've still got that. Um, and that's uh, having a bit of work at the moment. And then the other thing that's in the rebuild queue is, a, a, I think it's a 1980 Opel Manta 2-litre, not a Group 4 rally car, but um, what would have been at the time a Group 2 rally car. Uh, that's on the list to be rebuilt as well. So there's a bit going on. There's a bit of bit of stuff there. There's there's no excels there, is there though? No, the, the, we we don't have any excels anymore. Um, the excels were were fun for a while, uh, and I I absolutely love the concept of excels and the and the category and the racing, and I, I just uh, I think it's tremendous. Um, the way that's evolved in in Australia where any other country in the world an XL if it did still exist it would be a, a chicken coop in somebody's garden <laughs> yeah. it's going to get to the point like we had HQ Holdens here where they raced for years and basically they ran out of spare parts because everyone was cannibalising them to keep their racing cars going which when you saw them go around the uh, a quarter park Thunderdome HQ race do you ever see that on TV yeah dangerous Dangerous. That's how they. Uh, that's how they got rid of so many of those things over the journey. I'd reckon. Um, memorabilia, motorsport memorabilia. Are you a keeper of things along the journey? Have you got some stuff that's hidden away, or are you, as like we talked about the cars, you sort of go, no. yeah, yeah. No, I've, um, no, I've got uh, the only um, the only trophies I've got are Bathurst trophies, um, and they're the meaningful ones and. Sailing trophies. I don't. Mm. I, I don't keep the 
motorsport ones that but triple eight does and, yeah, and, yeah and that's where they should be absolutely mm. absolutely um as part of these podcasts because i know you've listened to so many of them um over the journey i reckon you've listened to one because you gave me a bake at Bathurst one year about how many times I said Repco. And one of them, in fact, it took me four minutes walking in your door here today that you gave me a bake about it. But what we like to do is allow the fans um, to ask their questions through sure. our National Motor Racing Museum Catch Racer Questions. Of course, the museum up at Mount Panorama was uh, the home for Chassis 10 for a fair while. It's been years. plenty of years up yep. there. Um, Brad and his team do a really good job with all the stuff up there. So I've got some questions, RD. And I'll start... I had to print these out on my phone here because I didn't bring a printer with me to Queensland. It was a bit too hard to put on the plane. Um, Jason Kant asks, how hard was it to have that conversation with Craig before he eventually stopped racing full-time with you and how did that all come together? Because he says he thinks it was seemingly forced, which I'm sure you can give your opinion and your view on it all, because he says that he was one of the main reasons why people supported Triple Eight um, more so than the, the other drivers, given his, his fan base and the personality and, and that sort of thing. How hard was that whole process with Craig of that so, 2018 decision that he was... Yeah, he, so, he so it, it didn't happen... This isn't something that happened quickly. So None of the things that it, happened in Triple Eight happened quickly. It, uh, in, um, in 2016, if you remember, we... Um, uh, uh, we ran three cars and ended up running for three cars for three years. Uh, and I had always said to Jamie and Craig and the sponsors, when other cars were ru- teams were running more cars, we would only ever run three cars for Craig Lands, right? And I'd given that undertaking to um, uh, Craig's manager, David Siegel. Um, long time before I knew that we had to protect the long term interests of Triple Eight by uh, making sure that we didn't hang on with Craig too long right there's a lot of all sorts of sportsmen mm. have overstayed their competitive which we talked about earlier welcome yeah. as it were yeah, yeah. so uh, we had to get that right um, in 2014, yeah, I had the opportunity at the back end of 2014 to do a deal with Shane to start in 2016. And um, and Red Bull were very keen on this as well uh, and Holden. Um, and uh, so I made sure I had that all tied up. Um, and then, uh, but I was always going to uh, try... Uh, level best to honour the commitment to Craig to give him the opportunity to continue with us. And hence, buying a, a racing entitlements contract as it was then um, in 2015 to come on stream in 2016 for Craig to drive uh, for a minimum three years. And we'd, and we'd see how he went. And if you remember, we had, had um, Caltech's sponsorship for two years and then Autobahn in the final year. And um, honestly... I think we got the timing perfect uh, in hindsight. You don't always know at the time that you are, but uh, it um, was perfect in that Craig uh, in 2018 won Bathurst mm. with um, Stephen Richards. And, uh, and then he st- stepped down 
uh, the end of that year. Uh, he didn't become a seat blocker. He deserved his place all the time he was there. Um, if maybe Craig left to hit completely to his own devices, would have gone on for another year. I don't know. But uh, to me, the timing was absolutely perfect. It, it, I would have hate to have seen Craig rattling around in mm. 20 something place would have devalued his legacy completely. And, uh, and anyway, I'd given the undertaking as well that he, if he wanted to be a co-driver, um, it was there. And of course, then, um, uh, for the next three years, Jamie's co-driver. So, uh, Craig wasn't forced out. He was very aware of the long-term plan. Um, and it was just a question of whether, um, you know, it was this year or that year, right? By let's call it a 12 month swing or whatever. Uh, in hindsight, I can look back and say, I think we absolutely nailed it. It's a bit like, uh, looking from a football club perspective from an AFL supporter, when there's champions of a club who have won premierships and done all sorts of great things, everyone does have a time that, you know, is the right time. Sometimes you know it, sometimes you don't know, sometimes the hindsight's right or wrong. But it's so hard when you've got, you know, the guy who's the, you know, he's loved by so many people and he's been such a pivotal part of your place that they're big decisions and they're big conversations that have to be had and sometimes fans don't like it, but sometimes it's because they're not going to get what they want. They want to see their guy go forever, but not, no one can go forever. That's just the nature of life. It's the nature of sport. Totally. And, and uh, it's unrealistic to, to expect people to, and especially when you're a part of a team. You know, if you're a golfer, it's up to you, right? Mm. When, when you step it's away. It's only one guy who's swinging the club. Yeah. Well, mm. when, you, when you can't get start money or appearance money as a golfer or something, then, yeah, okay. Then. But, but you know, in motor racing, a driver is part of a team. The team's got to work commercially. And uh, and for that to happen at our level, Triple Eight, then you've got to be able to to win all the time. Hmm. So, uh, I, I, as I said, I think we've got it right. Ross Dinner has got a question here. Um, he said that you've made the statement in previous pods, which clearly must be on other pods, not ours, because <laughs> this is the first time you've been on. But we're equal opportunists. We'll, we know there's other pods out there. We're happy to mention them. Hello, Rusty, all that stuff. Uh, that you sold the most Rolls Royces in Asia and you could order and get what you wanted. So what's the most extravagant request that you ever had? Extravagant request? You mean from a, a third party? For what they wanted in their roller. Oh, um to be honest, when you're a when you're a wheeler dealer like me, you actually sold the Rolls Royces that were sitting there. You didn't order them, especially you know these were these were cars that we were opportunistically buying because the market was screwed in one country and selling to another. So I think in terms of the um, in terms of the cars that I've been involved with over the whole of my lifetime where people have, you know, whether it's a Panther or later with the limousine business in, in, in Bremen, we're building, uh, bespoke, um, bespoke limousines. Uh, I think one of the, the most outrageous ones ever was there was a car called the Panther DeVille, which was looked like a Bugatti Royale, a 1930s four door long bonnet, Al Capone style gangster, car with a Jaguar engine in it and we we built 
these for people like Sammy Davis Jr., Elton John. That's so cool. Um, uh, uh, and w- uh, we built one for a guy called Oliver Reed, who was a famous uh, British actor, mm. renowned for having a drink or two. And he's he's dead now, probably because his his every organ failed. But um, but massive character, and he walked into the factory, uh, you know. 60 of us there or something on a Friday afternoon in the summer, the doors were open on the factory and he walked in um, clearly having had a glass or two of wine for, for lunch with two Purdy shotguns matching over his shoulders uh, and walked into where his car was being assembled. You know, we were in the, in the final stages of assembly. That, that process used to take about a month. And he'd walked in to have a look and we knew he was coming, but we didn't realise he was drunk. So he'd come in with two Purdy shotguns and he said, uh, boys, I want you to make some mountings for these on the outside of the boot lid of the car, right? And we had to persuade him that external mounting of two Purdy shotguns, probably not. <laughs> probably not a good look. Probably not a good look. So we'd, we'd find somewhere inside the car. <laughs> to just tuck them away. Yeah. Mm, that would be an interesting chat with the constabulary as you drove oh, off down the road. It was an yeah. interesting chat with the bloke. <laughs> no, I could imagine. could imagine. Yeah. I don't understand. Um, Graham Bennett's got a question. I'm, I'm interested in this one because I don't think I've really heard you talk about it before and I'm, I'm interested in the backstory on it all because I haven't got the full story on it. But... There was angst in the Triple Eight BTCC era with Jason Plato, who our listeners know from racing V8s here occasionally and mm. us watching the BTCC with Triple Eight mm. and Williams. So what was the scenario of why that all blew up? I mean, hes I know he's had a book out and that says that you were against him and protested him even though he was part of your team. What's the Jason Plato, Roland Dane <laughs> thing? Because Graham Bennett's asked about it, that um, what's your th- uh, why did you protest your own driver's victory in the British Touring Car Championship and try to get him disqualified to benefit the other team driver? Yeah. Asking the question. So, so firstly, that, that, uh, that particular question is not true. Sorry, that particular point is not true. Um, I didn't. Um, Jason would like to think I did, but <laughs> Jason's got a, a creative uh, memory. Um, but I, um, yeah, we started off in 2000 with a, a very good relationship, and, and and he won. I think the first weekend he was with us, and so that was uh, the last year of Super Touring, wasn't yeah, it? Correct. Yeah. Yep. And then we went into this new era, and we actually ran we ran four cars. We had uh, two cars that were factory cars. And two cars that um, I'd uh, got um, uh, Egg, which was a credit card to sponsor. I was going to ask what that was. I uh, remember the Egg cars, but I never knew what it was. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, and and they and funnily enough, at Silverstone a few weeks ago, um, that the guy I referred to earlier, the King of One Make series, Dave Loudon, said uh, said to me, "Oh, uh, Jason was a bit rude in his book." And I said, "Well, I haven't read it, but I've heard." And uh, and then. Uh, half an hour later, I'm talking to Phil Bennett, who was the driver who brought the egg money with him. And we ended up running two cars, one for him and one for James Thompson. So we were effectively a four-car team. Um, and Jason uh, took Phil Bennett out of a race in the dark in it, uh, in 2001 at Snetton. Um, uh, we were doing a night race and the, the lighting, there were certain areas in the track which, you know, it was very hard for a marshal to see or anyone else to see. It was the nature of the of the lighting we had then. It was um, nothing like what we're used to here in Australia when we do night races. Uh, 
and uh, round the back at Snet, and he he punted him off when he was leading. Um, Phil was leading, and and um, Jason just cleaned him up in a way which, uh, yeah, when you looked at the at the camera inside, and then you heard from from the driver immediately behind, you knew absolutely what had gone on, and uh, um, and that didn't sit well at all. Uh, I've always, always tried to maintain discipline amongst the drivers in Triple Eight, whether it's in the UK or, or or in Australia, and I think ninety-eight percent successfully. You know, I've cut the couple of times as, uh, where uh, drivers have um, not got it one hundred percent right, uh, but uh, I don't believe in in drivers in motor racing just driving for themselves that's if they're bringing the money to the team they've got a point you know like in formula two formula three or even some of the supercars situation but not where they're getting paid to drive mm. so uh and that's the yeah that's basically um what happened and um jason wasn't a team player uh and that was just one incident but whereas ivan muller was absolutely a team player and he's proved it year in year out one of the most um most consistent earners in touring cars has ever been from mm. about 95 in france when he didn't make it in single seaters 95 96 through to today um Earning money, he's still going, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like he stopped for a little bit, and he's yeah. he's still running. Yeah. yeah, he had a year or two off, and then he got, got back bored into it. and went again. But he, um, but it's not only uh, he's conducted himself in a way which he never took the last dollar off the table. He always made sure that yeah, when it if if a team was looking at who's our most expensive driver and we'll get rid of him, it wasn't him. And he's always been a team player, so. Uh, to me, he's been a benchmark over over many many years. I've got utmost respect for the way that he has always conducted himself, whether it was Triple Eight or whether it was Audi before Triple Eight or or with Seat or with other people, you know, that he's been with over the years. So, what was the the angle? Where did that all blow up with with Plato? So he has that moment where he sent a teammate off the road. Yeah, that where was, did it all unfold from from no, there, and then, it all then, fell apart. Yeah, then uh, it was Jason didn't like being pulled up on it, and um, and just went for his own thing and didn't didn't care of the consequences, and and GM didn't like that attitude either. Yeah, Vauxhall didn't like that attitude either. Um, so, uh, and I was the and believe me, the other directors of the business didn't like it. They didn't they didn't say so because they didn't have to. So, um, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, they could have um, they could have been more probably more supportive of it. But I was the one who had say. I didn't care. It was that's my job. Mm. That was my job. So I made sure that uh, the interests of Triple Eight were were represented in the best way. So he's you've never clearly you said before you have, you haven't read the book. You're probably not likely to read the book anytime soon, but you've heard enough of what's been yeah, written about. And, look, and, and, and I've spoken to Jason since when we run into each other is whatever. Um, and, uh, but I hadn't, yeah, until somebody told me about the book a year or two later, I hadn't realized that he'd, uh, uh, got such a, um, 
a grudge in his head, but that's fine. So what? You don't you don't make omelets without breaking a few eggs. True, true. Uh, Andrew Walker, I don't mind this question. This is interesting. Right. Is making money more important than winning? Um, so you should uh, probably ask Tony Quinn what I said to him um, whenever it was. Uh, uh, can't remember two years ago or something when Tony. Um, came to see me about uh, interested in buying a share uh, of Triple Eight and supporting Jamie, as and when Jamie became the uh, the team principal and managing director. And I said to Tony, "Don't come here first and foremost to earn money. Come here to win, because first and foremost we win. So the the commercial piece will come off the back of winning." Mm. Right, but the commercial piece won't come if you don't win. It's pretty so, simple. So um, you have to understand that, and he uh, and he'll tell you if you ask him now. He said, "Oh yeah, okay, now I understand how this team works." So it's not that we don't want to make money, but winning has to come first. Mm, the other bit comes from yeah, can come from that. Uh, Rowan Saxby, do you still own the Reliant Robin? Yep, I've still got Reliant Robin. That's a bit of a project as well. To it's been abused so badly over the last seven or eight years, it needs a a, a little bit of a birthday at the moment. You've got a few projects here that you've yeah. you got to get done. You've got to get onto it. True. Oh, um, Darren House on Instagram uh, about the twelve hour this year in winning the race with Kenny Bull's mm. Sun Energy car. Tell mm. me about that because I mean I love that race. I love the the cars. Uh, I love the Kenny story too, which mm. is a really interesting one. And we're hoping to get him on the the pot at some stage when our our diaries and our time zones line up. But did you get a lot of satisfaction out of that one? Yes, I did. I mean, it, it's uh, I like to to think that I've got. Um, 10 Bathurst because, uh, you know, I team managed the car in 2017 uh, at um, the Marinello owned and entered car and that we won with in with Jamie and, and uh, Craig and Tony Villander. And then this year, um, managing the, the car for Kenny under under the Triple Eight uh, banner. And uh, no, I I love it. I love that event. Um, I uh, it was hard this year because it so bloody cold and yeah, it wasn't fun, was it? From <laughs> perspective, it wasn't as good as being there in still thawing out. February, but but it was different. And um, yeah, we overcame a few few things along the way, a couple of drive throughs and <laughs> uh, etc. But uh, no, I, I I loved it, and I have to say that the two um, pros that um, AMG sent us, oh, and plus um, Kenny's um, uh, spare AM driver, Martin, uh, Martin Conrad. Conrad. Yeah, yep. No, Martin, Martin was so laid back, uh, he had to, you know, he had to get him up to get, get in the car, completely laid back, uh, but absolutely knew his position in the car. Um, Jules Gunion is um, superb. Absolutely superbly talented driver, but also uh, Lucas Stoltz is a very quiet achiever. No ego to him whatsoever. Uh, great to work with. So um, it was it was a really uh, good experience. And that car stands out. It's easy to spot that one coming down pit straight. True uh, at Mount Panorama. Um, 
I won't try to read all the Insta handles. I've only got a couple left. Um, at what stage did you realise or believe that JB would be the successor to you? Is this something that stood out along the journey? I mean, we know he's he's a racing guy. He's been doing it all his life from carts to racing and winning. But what else did you see along the way and when did you see it that made you feel comfortable to go, right, you're the man? Well, uh, again, these things tend to develop over, over time. Uh, Jamie has always said he'd never want to stay around driving forever. I mean, there used to be a time when he said he'd retire by the time he was 30. I did remember. Yeah, I think those headlines were around a few times. I I think we all know that was unlikely. But on the other hand, um, he'd started a few years ago to look at, you know, what am I going to do post-driving? He's got his uh, car wash business, uh, which runs pretty good. Um, And uh, But he... Uh, he'd always said, "Look, I'm motorsport. I grew up in motorsport. I, I, I love it. It's yeah. It's it's my DNA. Really, it's um, uh, it's motorsport through and through. And I want to stay involved with it. Uh, and so he's also, I think, he's soaked up a lot over the years from yeah from Paul Dumbrell, who's one of his closest friends, and Paul has." Being a massively better businessman than he was race driver, and he was a pretty handy race driver, to be honest. So um, Jamie's sucked up a lot from him, um, and he came to me a few years ago and said, uh, "Yeah, I'd like to show my um, my really the the beginnings of my wish of yeah maybe one day I can be at Triple Eight by buying a." A small shareholding, which he did, and so to get himself more immersed in the business, to understand it more, take part in board meetings, to see see what it's all about, um, understand it more, and uh, so it developed over over a period. Uh, and to me, it it was then I, I said, well, okay, you if you get involved, as long as you're uh, happy. Uh, to work with Jessica as well as she's involved but you probably need somebody in the background really who can if you need a safety net can be one but can also bring a high level of of commercial expertise you know if uh, I'm not there or you don't want me there or whatever Uh, and uh, so yeah hence Tony um, Tony Quinn being there so um, it came together over a period of about five years. Mm. Oh, I went to go ask the next question and I realised we've already chatted about that, so it's not even worth asking that um, last question. We've talked about a whole pile of stuff here, but we tend to finish off with a top ten shootout. You've seen plenty of them over the years and your team's collected plenty of poll checks from these over the years. This is fancy word association. Give me the first one. You just nearly scoffed that glass of water straight back out your mouth as you said as, you, as I said that. Give me the first word that comes in your brain when I say these following things. And you can qualify it if you have to to explain and you're not allowed to use the same word twice. That's the rule. Okay? I'll try. <laughs> you look worried. This is easy. This is easy. Peter Brock. Um, yeah, the chase in the, <laughs> in the uh, Qantas – the, the Qantas uh, Vectra. The failed Bathurst takeoff Qantas Vectra. <laughs> yeah. Jamie Winkup. Oh, uh, 2000 and um, end of 2005, uh, 
testing a QR when looking at his braking traces and we realized that we'd uh, we'd struck gold didn't realize it was platinum at that stage but we'd struck gold Bathurst uh, 2006 winning first Bathurst breakthrough uh, mm. yep that's the word isn't it really yep. all that Ivan Muller uh, Ivan Muller probably 2005 uh, for one reason that I can't even start to say on a podcast well even if and we bleep stuff even if you oh, bleep no. it okay. uh, but and the other reason for um, driving whole stints with no windscreen um, with three layers of underwear on when other people as you know weren't wearing any underwear <laughs> that day <laughs> and, and um, <laughs> by contrast he had three sets on I think and just and just getting on with it and doing it just so that it gave Craig a few more points towards the championship at the at the end of the year and not once complaining to me about it. He's a history maker too for Triple Eight because he's the only guy to win Triple Eight UK and Triple Eight Australia because he won with Craig in oh five at Sandown. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh Ludo Lacroix, what's the word that springs to mind for Ludo? And don't say French, because that's too <laughs> obvious. <laughs> oh, uh, winner, mm. yeah. I mean, Ludo. Uh, whilst whilst I'll never be uh, friends with him again because of the way he left Triple or just you know just not telling the truth uh, when he left, which I would have respected if I didn't like it. And uh, but uh, no, Ludo's a winner, um, and in the same way that I like to think um, I am, and uh, he's. Uh, he's not satisfied is by anything less than winning. That's what I mean. Hmm. He doesn't just win things, but it's from the same mentality as me that I cannot get excited about coming second. Hmm. He's a guy who does a bit of winning. Shane Van Gisbergen. Um, wow. What <laughs> first thing that comes into my mind about Shane again? I can't repeat probably, <laughs> but. Um, this is a theme that's developing here. What's going on here? Uh, but I think the um, the multifaceted talent. If I, that's the first thing that springs into my mind, really, is that this extraordinarily versatile driver across so many cars and enjoying it while he's doing it. Uh, and getting getting the most out of them in most situations. He's got the Jim Richards modern flavour, doesn't he, of just having a go at anything and being really good in just about everything. Yeah, but on a you know, he's gone and done it, you know, on a world stage. I mean, mm. don't forget that he was G C champion in Europe in twenty sixteen. Mm. People mm. forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Craig Lowndes. Uh smile. <laughs> um, but uh, no, just uh, loyalty, mm. really. Um, not just to Triple Eight, but to um, to Australian motorsport, etc. Uh, no, that's that's the first thing that comes to mind is, is loyalty. Derek Warwick, uh, mate. Mm. Um, you know, massively um, is my best friend. Um, He's, 
to me, he's uh, ultimate embodiment of a of a person who looks after other people, uh, like Chris Brady, to be honest, hmm. um, here in Australia. But uh, yeah, no, just just good bloke and always uh, always there. Voxel. Um, yeah, it was a gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's there were good days. Uh, Vauxhall, we had a lot of a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed enjoyed a lot of good experiences uh, together. Uh, ultimately. Ultimately, it's a dead end brand like Holden. Yeah, it hasn't died in, in the UK yet because the market is still too big. But I think ultimately, it'll mm. yeah, you'll have Opals there like you do everywhere else in Europe. So it's a bit of a dead end brand, really. But we had a lot of fun with it along the way, mm. like Holden. Mm. Last one, Roger Penske. Oh, uh, formidable. Um, yeah, he's incredibly um, successful businessman, and um, and therefore that gives him the freedom to you know go motor racing at almost a different level from anyone else. Uh, you have to admire anyone who's got the longevity that he's got um, at a business level what is he 85 or whatever mm, still going strong yeah. um, he made he made us raise our game I- in Australia uh, I don't like the American way of going motor racing some aspects of it uh, and I certainly will always consider what went on at Bathurst in 2019 to be beneath him beneath supercars um, and should have never happened uh, but that apart we had a, a good personal relationship and um, I've got the utmost admiration for for yeah what he's what he's done over over so many years in, in still being there and um, and still loving racing Um by his own admission, not making money out of motor racing, I said, well, you didn't have to. The rest of us, if we want to stay alive, we have to. Mm. But you, you didn't have to because it's your game of golf, if you like, and, and well done for it. So, no, it's a formidable person. Mm. Mm. He yeah. still goes, you know, when most people have uh, by that age just long decided to stop flying around the world and doing all the stuff he does, it's it's. It's pretty amazing. It's it pretty is. amazing. Yeah. Adi, thank you for sitting down with me. Really appreciate it. We've covered a bit of this, a bit of that, a, mm. a bit of everything. We could probably do part two another time another mm. day. But uh, enjoy the rest of the year. What, what have you got planned for the rest of the year before we finish up? Anything exciting or what are you, what are you up to? It's busy. Um, I wondered how I was going to get this in. Yeah, I know where you're going here too. <laughs> Go on, have a crack. Um, but uh, team managing the super cheap auto wildcard <laughs> Entry. At the Repco Bathurst one thousand. There you go. There you go. Yeah. We're equal opportunists here. It's, you know, no, it's I'm okay. uh, so I, I'm actually pretty busy. I've got that going on. Um, the uh, as a as a big focus, uh, but you know, we the back end of the year. There's plenty going on uh, motor racing wise. Uh, there's and I don't 
you know, I, I stayed away for most of the first half. Second half, there's some big events coming up, and and even if I'm not actively working at them, it's hard to stay away from the Gold Coast. It's down the road, it, yeah. And it'll be impossible to stay away from Adelaide. You know, just how fantastic is it to have mm. Adelaide back on the on the calendar? Um, so there's a few races to do, uh, a few, some fishing to do, um, stuff like that, which is important. And are, you, are you any good? Do you actually catch anything or do you just go for the boat ride? No, we've caught a few things and we're getting better. Um, and uh, But I just enjoy the experience. I enjoy um, burning up some fuel and going fast and doing 50 knots on the water is pretty exciting. Uh, and um, But just, just uh, having a good time. I've had a good time. Thanks for hosting. Lovely cool. to sit down and chat. All the best for the rest of the year. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. A big thank you to RD for sitting down with me, Roland Dane, on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. You'll notice too that he went nearly across two parts, nearly two hours, without trying to slip in the rival sponsor's name. He only got it in once the whole way through. But we're good blokes. We're all good sports. It was great to sit down and catch up with him and talk about a whole pile of stuff from Triple H's history over the course of its time in the UK and in Australia. Now, next week on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco, Anton D. Pasquale. The DJR Shell V Power Racing Team driver's never been on our podcast before, so I've sat down with him at DJR headquarters to have a chat, not just so much about the now, but about his career so far, how he's got to be where he is, some of the business stuff that you don't know that he's involved in, and some of the other little tidbits of info that maybe you don't know about the driver of the number 11 Shell V Power Mustang. That's Anton Di Pasquale next week on the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget every Tuesday, the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. Keep listening to the boys. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And we'll have the episode with Anton next Wednesday on the V8 Salute Podcast, powered by Repco. Chat to you then. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.